There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's The Wonky Show. We've got RFS's big admissions review, the spread of coronavirus, the return of student number controls, and HEPI's levelling up report. It's all coming up. Chatsworth took on a Chinese graduate uh, to help them develop their kind of social uh, media marketing in, uh, in in China. And as a result, we're able to attract, uh, you know, an increased volume of tourists that way. And I think, you know, if we can think of the ideas that already exist, you know, try to make them more visible, maybe try to, uh, to spread some of the best ideas. Um, I think that could be quite exciting. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Mark Leach, recording from Wonky HQ in London, and today we have three amazing guests. In London, at Woburn House, it's Vivian Stern, Director of Universities UK International. Vivian, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, my highlight of the week. Uh, (laughs) Well, so far, we don't actually seem to have a pandemic on our hands, but I think it might be a question of time. Um, And in Sunderland, we have David Bell, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sunderland. David, your highlight of the week, please. Well, our younger daughter who lives in Australia told the wider family that she is pregnant. Uh, And in South Gloucestershire, it's contributing editor to Wonky Graham Wise. Graham, your highlight of the week, please. Well, as of today, I only have about 20,000 words left to write of my PhD thesis. Hooray! Something to celebrate. Right, this week we start with admissions. The Office of Students has announced its long-awaited review of university admissions and a big consultation to go alongside it. David, can you talk us through this one? Well, the Office for Students has launched its major review on the future of higher education admissions and the outcomes here could reverberate for years to come. The review wants to consider the extent to which the system works for all students, undergraduate and postgraduate, irrespective of age and type of study. And we're going to see discussion on some of the most controversial issues of recent times, the use and value of predicted grades, unconditional offers, marketing incentives and the like. And the consultation lays out some of the options for the future, everything from retaining, perhaps just tweaking the current system, all the way through to a full-blown post-qualification admissions system. All in all, Mark, this is a biggie. I think it definitely is. Vivian, I seem to remember being in a meeting with you probably more than 10 years ago, um, where when uh, PQA had kind of gone back through one of its uh, cycles of kind of proposal and, and backlash. Um, do, do you think that this time, perhaps, there's a sort of head of steam behind the idea that maybe it'll actually happen? Well, I don't know. It always seemed to me that there must be a workable solution somewhere in all of this, because every time this has come round, and as you say, it's been we've been round this block three or ta- three or four times, even during the period that I've been involved in higher education policy. Um, the the gap between you know the 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 sort of the dates uh, that you need to um, narrow in order to make PQA uh, a reality seemed relatively short, and I wonder whether you know this time somehow a fix will be found. Do, do either of you think that um, there's a? I mean, the, the, the Times reported this morning on its front page that, uh, in its words, you know, university chiefs, vice chancellors are, are kind of getting behind the idea. Does that ring true to to any of you? I think what I what I was thinking about this is it, well, it's a huge review. OFS has is taking on 
enormous number of issues at the same time. I have two concerns about the process with this review. Um, the first is that the review's been the review hasn't been set up. It seems to me in a very inclusive way. So unlike the two thousand and four three four Schwartz review, which was a stakeholder based panel type review, OFS as regulator has sort of said, "Well, we're the regulator. We're going to review it for you and come to some conclusions." And it isn't entirely. In fact, it's it's hardly in OFS's within OFS's powers to implement the conclusions. They do acknowledge that in, in in the consultation document, but the entire framing of it as imposition, uh, I think, may turn out to be quite unhelpful. Um, the second concern, wider concern, I have is that in a few minutes later in this podcast, we're going to talk about student number controls um, and the um, uh, growing. The forecast huge expansion of the higher education system. The consultation document seems quite insensitive to the question of whether or not the admission system that we that works reasonably well presently transforms under conditions of great expansion or really limited supply. Do you see what I mean? I mean, um, to put it another way, uh, as OFS, there's, there's nothing in the consultation document to suggest that OFS has thought through whether the admission system would work or how it would need to change in a scenario where there's an enormous queue of people waiting outside the sector to try to get mm. in. Yeah, and, and and few kind of policy actors in the sector seem to. I mean, this has been talked about now everywhere, but um, I've not seen any policy that really speaks to a response to, um, you know, the, the booming demographics. I mean, really, we need to be building new universities um, and, the, you know, there the needs to be, you know, shovel-ready products, uh, projects already already happening, but there, there doesn't seem to be. Um, I think um, in terms of the sector, the UK still has its own review to publish about admissions. And I wonder, given that OFS can't kind of instruct the sector to do this, uh, but it can very much set the... Um, set the agenda and kind of set the tone, I wonder if that UK... Uh, its own report will perhaps go further than we might have thought in recent years in, in, in trying to reform the system, given that the change has to come from universities themselves. Well, I think, I mean, I have to say, David will know more about this than I do, uh, and I'm not close to to that report. But it seems to me that, you know, from our point of view, the sector has to be seen to be addressing some of those uh, issues which have caused uh, real concern at the political level, particularly unconditional, uh, conditional unconditionals. Um, you know, I, I, I have lived through this debate, as I've said, sort of three or four times, and I suspect the balance of uh, opinion in, in university, uh, you know, in, in our membership will probably... Uh, you know, fall on the, on the side of, um, incremental improvement to the system, which I suppose, as David says, uh, it has always been the case that the, um, that, that sort of radical reform of the admissions, uh, system ends up being considered as a sort of sledgehammer to crack, crack a nut when you look at where there may be, um, you know, Issues in the system that uh, that might be ca- causing a small amount of um, uh, d- you know uh, disadvantage to to a relatively small number of individuals. So I, I suspect we'll look for ways to uh, demonstrate that we're taking very seriously the need to uh, ensure the the admission system is not only fair but also perceived as fair. Um, but David, probably closer to this than I am. I remember being in Whitehall when this was considered a number of years ago, and the view was then that actually there might be some benefits, but the level of disruption 
uh, and upheaval that would follow might not be worth it. I think that still remains my own personal view, um, but I'm happy to be persuaded otherwise, because we have to remember that the majority of students, the hundreds of thousands of students that enter higher education each year, do it relatively smoothly. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is Martine Garland. I'm a lecturer and researcher at Aberystwyth University Business School. My article focuses on income diversification as a strategic response to the vagaries of market forces and government policy. An over-dependence on any one source of income creates risk. 83% of your income coming from tuition fees is problematic if your market share declines. A university can reduce their exposure by striving for a more balanced income portfolio. The article highlights the contradiction between the Income Diversification Index findings and the HESA Financial Security Index. The universities that are apparently financially secure have a heavy reliance on tuition fee income, whereas some major Russell Group universities that are very financially diversified place a long way down the security index. The piece explores this inversion more fully and calls for the level of income diversification to be added to the security index suite of measures. Now... The coronavirus has reached Europe and has already had an outsized impact on universities around the world. Vivian, what are people feeling? Well, I think that, I mean, it's probably it's wrong to sound flippant on a topic like this, but this is filling the hole uh, left in my life by, uh, you know, the disappearance of Brexit no deal planning from our uh, list of things to do. It has become increasingly clear to us as an organisation, to, uh, you know, universities, and I think to all sorts of organisations that uh, there is going to be significant disruption. We started off thinking that it would have a, a significant impact on international recruitment, particularly from China. I think it's already absolutely clear that it'll go far beyond that. And now, of course, most organisations, including UK, uh, are thinking through what we will do in the event that, uh, you know, we, we, the, the, out, the outbreak in the UK uh, reaches epidemic proportions. Um, I think this is a uh, potentially, uh, you know, seismic issue for the sector. And um, the, I suppose, one upside of our position is that my understanding is that in uh, situations such as this, timing matters enormously. The later the outbreak uh, really takes hold in the UK, the better. The more chance there is that, um, you know, improving temperatures and, uh, you know, the the, the conditions that um, encourage the spread of uh, viruses will uh, begin to um, mitigate the speed and scale of the spread. And of course, there's a global race on to produce a vaccine. But right now, uh, it's already pretty clear it's going to have an impact on institutions uh, and on the bottom line. David, I mean, you, you obviously used to be a senior civil servant. And I, mean, I guess from your perspective, um, seeing it on both sides, how bad do you think things would have to get before the government starts saying things like, you know, we, we need to close campuses? It's very interesting with coronavirus, isn't it? Because clearly you want to plan properly and thoroughly. Equally, you don't want to up the ante too soon. That happens. Uh, that's an issue in consideration at central government level. And it's the same at institutional level where you need to do the preparation. You need to keep people informed, but you don't want them to overreact and certainly not to overreact too soon. I think what's interesting about all of this, Mark, is that uh, we have a good example of something that, frankly, has just come from left field. And there'll be a good number of vice chancellors and finance directors who will be scratching their heads, wondering what all of this is going to mean, not just for budgets this year, but perhaps for budgets next year and the years beyond. 
Well, we are like like most kind of Western university systems, quite quite exposed to China in terms of the amount of Chinese students that that come. I mean, Vivian, you must have seen that the Australian universities have been particularly hit in this context. Um, have you picked up anything from them about how they're they're coping with that? Yeah, I mean, I think again, there's a, there's some um, you know advantage for the UK sector in the sense that we can look at the way that the Australian sector has reacted to uh, the impact of coronavirus on their uh, recruitment cycle because, of course, timing means that Australian Australian institutions are being um, significantly affected right now. Uh, I think we've looked with some interest at the way that some individual universities have gone about um, providing information to staff and students, putting in place their own institutional plans, um, and also mitigating the impact of uh, restrictions on travel through, for example, um, you know, online delivery to students who can't return or can't come onto campus. Um, and we've, uh, in fact, I've got a colleague over in Australia at the moment at the University's Australia Conference. One of the things he's doing is hunting out people who we can bring into our uh, coronavirus uh, planning work. We've established a cross-sector uh, task group to help us sort of deal with all of the issues that are coming up from various different sort of parts of uh, the university system. And one of the things I'm really keen for us to do is share uh, the best examples of um, international planning and response uh, work to this. So Australia, you know, we're definitely on to, but I think there'll be other systems we can learn from too. But the, the bottom line impact could be really significant. We were looking at this yesterday. And if you, um, if you saw a kind of um, a reduction in uh, uh, Chinese. Let's just look at China for, for 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 now. But of course, you know, as David says, this is now an issue that goes far beyond uh, China. If you saw a five percent reduction in uh, Chinese enrolments, you would see a hit of just over forty million for the UK sector. If you found uh, yourself in a situation where there was a reduction a reduction of sixty uh, percent, the sectors, uh, you know, the hit would be uh, seven hundred eighty million. And for some institutions, the dependence on uh, fee income from Chinese students uh, as a proportion of total income is really quite considerable. So I would expect, um, you know, governing bodies and universities to be looking at their exposure and trying to work out, um, you know, what in a number of scenarios the impact would be and how they might mitigate it. I think the upside is that um, a vaccine will be developed. And uh, I would imagine that this is a time-limited crisis. Uh, two to three weeks ago, uh, I feared that this situation, if it was confined to China and a couple of other East Asian countries, uh, that we might have an Australian type situation, even by September, where the government said, well, sorry, none of you can come. Um, uh, and I then put myself in a news blackout to work on my dissertation. And uh, because I've come on here, I've now looked at the news. <laughs> so <laughs> the situation has uh, moved on considerably. And I now suspect we're not in this, uh, in a trajectory where we'd be heading towards the government doing that because there wouldn't be any point. Um, and instead, we need to think of it as a kind of global, enormously disruptive, as Vivian says, hopefully not long-term uh, uh, factor. Uh, situation, terrible situation. Uh, but I mean, disruptive not only to the HE sector, but to all parts of normal British life. I think that's an important point. I mean, one of the things that I think we ought to be just thinking through is that, you know, I imagine this will have a kind of a sort of noticeable effect on the, uh, on the world economy. And um, if you think about all of the 
these sort of policy changes and pressures that we're still seeing working through the system, which really can be traced back to the financial crisis in 2008. I think you could find that the effects of coronavirus go, uh, go beyond whatever we have to deal with this year and perhaps in the early part of next year. You might find that, you know, economic performance is you know, affected, and then that uh, that starts to impact on other areas of policy. In an area, in a, a sort of period in which I think we're already pretty worried about, um, you know, our economic performance and the impact that might have. And I think it's also going to be interesting to see the extent to which the OFS is uh, tolerant when you know the accountability and finance returns have to go in later this year, because I do think it will have an impact. Thank you all. And in the show notes, there are links to the latest government advice about coronavirus. Hello, Jim from the team here. Our big student experience event, Secret Life of Students, is coming up, 19th of March, London. Very excited to say that Michelle Donnellan, uh, the new universities minister at DfE, will be uh, coming along. Uh, obviously, now that the science brief is firmly in a different department in business, energy and industrial strategy, we're set for a full-time focus on higher education providers and their students. And so we're delighted that Michelle will be joining us for one of her first major appearances uh, at Secret Life of students. Uh, Obviously, action on free speech and low-quality courses were among the manifesto promises she'll be tasked with delivery. uh, delivery. Uh, But beyond the headlines, what what is the government's emerging agenda for students? Will Don Learn, for example, pick up the baton from Chris Skidmore on student accommodation? Will the experience of disabled students enjoy a similar level of attention? And whatever happened to the government's three-step approach for students framework that Chris Skidmore announced at last year's Secret Life? Uh, We'll answer all these questions and more on everything from student safety to fairness to how students learn and where the TEF might be going. Unmissable event. Full details at wonky.com forward slash events where you can get your tickets. Right, student number controls seem to be making uh, their reappearance to English higher education. We've been writing about how and why on the site uh, all this week. Graham, what's going on? Uh, So several leading experts have been forecasting large expansions of demand for um, higher education running through this decade to 2030, and then after 2030, it, it plateaus, uh, dips a bit and then plateaus. Um, and uh, as you said earlier, Mark, um, the sector is uh, and government are only just seem to be getting to grips with the question of what this might mean for all sorts of different things. Um, there are some signs in the commentary and in some of the personnel changes in government that student number controls might be on the table to return, having been removed in, I think, 2013. And in some instances, they actually have returned already by the back door. So as uh, Jim Dickinson points out on the on the blog, uh, the Office for Students has been imposing some institutional number controls where institutions are not meeting the IFS's expectations in relation to their registration conditions. So um, we are already seeing a sort of trickling of this. And uh, uh, we may see more. But the big question is, well, uh, is a student number control part of the policy response that will come when the overall demand for higher education rises and rises as is forecast? I think there's now consensus that that's going to be the way it plays out, uh, the, the rising demand that is. So I, I've done a thought experiment uh, on Wonky uh, uh, around what you might do um, instead of introducing a global number control which I think would have all sorts of really terrible consequences if you did that. Um, And instead, I'd like to explore the idea that you impose a number control for level six. So full-time 
honours degree enrolments, uh, essentially. Uh, but that other kinds of undergraduate study you leave unrestricted, uncontrolled. So that as more and more people flow into the sector, there is some some capacity for them to go into, um, uh, but you're able to control the costs. Right. David, do you think this is a kind of symptom of, of government kind of losing some of its levers over the sector, both kind of in funding and, uh, and even in, in regulation? I think the subject level risk is a real one. But here again, the government's going to have to consider what it thinks more important, because it could well be that uh, it, it, it then blocks access to courses from students from all kinds of backgrounds. How does that play with the level levelling up agenda, where in some parts of the country, the courses may uh, lead to lower graduate earnings, but they're still incredibly important for the students and their communities? I don't see any perfect solution in this one, Mark. There's also things they could do, perhaps on a regional basis. So, I mean, the you know, the, the we, we can't move for the the talk from the government of a leveling leveling up agenda. Um, I guess the, the the question is how prescriptive they want to be about how the system operates at, at these different levels. Well, I mean, I think about this also from I mean. You know, forgive me for being a bit obsessed with the international perspective, but when we got the the post study work uh, visa announcement, one of the things that we immediately started thinking about is, you know, if you see that really sort of putting the UK back on the map as a popular destination for international students, at the same time as you begin to see this sort of demographic, uh, you know, bulge, um, you know, bulge um, uh, arriving uh, at, at universities. I mean, I'm, my uh, my son is in, I think, the peak year, uh, so when I sort of um, Think about the experience that he's likely to have when he applies to university compared to the experience that my niece who's applying this year will have, you know, makes me feel a bit sorry for him because it's going to be a lot harder for him to get, uh, to get, you know, to wherever he, he wants to study. Um, and I also think it means that we have to think about the political permission that we'll have to, uh, to continue to, uh, attract and, uh, and, uh, grow international student numbers. There may come a point at which you see the support that we now seem to have uh, achieved um, draining away as people like me um, start to wonder why you know their um, their sort of um, golden haired offspring can't get into the Russell Group University of their choice um, and so I think you have to watch that one I think you know from our perspective it's a question I mean David talked earlier about um, getting on the front foot I think trying to anticipate where some of these uh, pressures might uh, might affect uh, you know, the policy environment, I think, is really important, trying to get a couple of years ahead of what this might mean for us. Yeah, I think that's really crucial. I mean, uh, actually, whether you have student number controls or not, taken as a proportion of the total number of, of, of uh, taken as a portion of the total number of young people going into higher education or trying to, the number of people uh, in the more elite parts of the sector will be restricted. Those institutions, whether you whether you look at look at Oxbridge in isolation or, or the Russell Group, simply won't or can't expand at the same rate as the system would expand. Um, so we we are going to have a more concentrated um, sort of elite segment. I think the dynamics of that are challenging. You know, one might uh, want the government to fund expansion. I think we have to be realistic. Uh, that's not going to happen. So there's a, probably a trade-off here. Do you want to keep expanding the system but see the unit of resource shrink and shrink and shrink? And that has all kinds of consequences for staff and students. Or do you want to cap the numbers? And that's not going to be straightforward either. I think that's an incredibly important point. I mean, the fact is that the best way to widen participation is increase participation. And that has been the lesson of the last uh, decade. And, and you know, it is very hard to imagine a system where uh, where 
demand is, you know, where, where capacity doesn't meet um, demand to the extent it does currently that won't disadvantage students from uh, from from poorer backgrounds. I, I think, you know, although the, you know, Graham's suggestion around um, level four and five is interesting, that is a, a, a sort of, as David says, a bit of a wicked issue. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the other key reasons behind my proposal is that if you do have a global number control, the very first things that will go under conditions of enormously increased demand would be shorter cycle, level four and five, and part-time. Now we're going to play Yes, But Does It Correlate? Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that tracks the comings and goings of HE data. Old Meets News this week. I've gone back to the old destination of levers from higher education data from HESA and compared it to the latest available LEO data on salary. For the graduating class of 2014-15, was being in employment after six months a good indicator of higher average earnings later on in life? The percentage in employment six months after graduation compared to median earnings for the same cohort five years on. Does it correlate? I'll just give a personal anecdote. When I left university, I dorised about for a year, potted off to Italy and learned Italian. Um, I then came back and accepted a really terribly paid job working for an MP. Um, but, you know, I don't think that's held me back. I think people, you know, some people sometimes take a bit of time to make a serious start in their careers. And that's probably in some cases quite a good thing. But it is five years, so I'm going to say it does correlate, just to make things interesting. No, it doesn't. R squared is 0.0002, meaning that these two variables are almost certain to have no meaningful relationship. The issue is probably within the quality of data returned through Delhi. You'll see not all providers are shown in the data, and as usual, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. It's a reminder of why the six-month survey date was seen as too short, and also of how quickly graduate fortunes can change. Okay, next up, and finally, Hepi has released a report into how universities can heal a divided Britain. Um, it's intended to build on the recommendations uh, of the Orga Review and has a whole host of ideas uh, and proposals. It's a really interesting piece of work. Uh, David, can, can you talk us through it? Well, the Hepi report is a really interesting contribution by three distinguished individuals. Uh, Sir Chris Husbands, the Vice-Chancellor at Sheffield Hallam, uh, Natalie Day, the Head of Strategy and Insight at Hallam, and Chair of Governors at the University, uh, Lord Kerslake, Bob Kerslake, who, amongst other things, was previously the head of the civil service. Now, there's a lot of pressure being brought to bear on universities at the moment to demonstrate their value in localities and communities. And so this is a stimulating report with a number of thoughtful ideas. And these include, for example, the establishment of a new National Skills Council with money devolved to local levels to address skills shortages and educational disadvantage. The rather interesting idea of a first-in-family allowance, ensuring that the first year of a degree is tuition-free for any student whose parents have not had a tertiary education. And then also a suggestion that there should be £500 million of the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund allocated to fund regional growth and innovation. So a timely and provocative contribution to this important debate, even if you don't agree with all the policy prescriptions. I think this is, this is one of my favourite sorts of uh, proposals where you actually have some tangible policy end of it so we've been talking now for several years about how universities are uh, becoming out of touch to local communities and obviously the civic agenda has been a big response to that um but here we've got some really um really interesting policy prescriptions as you say that that could be taken up by government and and by the sector 
I think this is a really good report, although I think perhaps it's underplayed the contribution the private sector needs to make across uh, regional growth. We want public investment, but we know from experience elsewhere that actually the best growth is likely to come when the private sector is uh, investing strongly and the public sector is supporting that as well. I think if this is an exclusively public uh, investment-led solution, it's not going to have the long-term benefits that I think everyone wants to see right across the country. Graham, what jumped out at you from this report? Well, there's a great deal to go at uh, in this report. It's very broad. Um, it, 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 its recommendations um, sweep from the, the quite niche to the absolutely kind of massive. Um, and um, I think it links to the previous conversation about um, growing uh, growing demand and expansion. I mean, um, they they talk a lot, and I think they're right about the questions about rebalancing Britain. Seems to be a hot political topic, and we do know that the by far the largest increases in likely demand for higher education are going to come in London and the southeast. I mean, by far. Um, so there is a question about whether or not that demand should be satisfied where it is in, in those regions, or if there's an opportunity to help to use that to help grow provision and activity and um, economic activity more broadly in other parts of the country. So do we need to think a bit more about intra-UK mobility? Mm. And Vivian, I'm interested to, to know how this is perceived internationally. I'm interested to know um, whether UK universities are seen to be very good at this kind of thing, um, or whether they're kind of, I guess, the, the, a kind of big focus, particularly for some of the sector in kind of looking globally, I guess a lot of this stuff doesn't get seen. When I go to visit universities or I talk to institutions about what they do, um, you know, sort of this very permeable, um, uh, interface with the kind of places that they, they're, they're located, it seems to me that the, the sort of, the appreciation, the public and political appreciation, certainly the international appreciation of the kind of extent and breadth of that in many cases just sort of it doesn't match what's there. Somehow there's a huge amount of effort and um, and, and sort of embedded uh, practice, but it doesn't capture the nation's imagination in a way that perhaps uh, it, 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 it might do. Maybe, you know, the, the, the thing I like about this report is the sort of search for a big idea, you know, or, or a range of big ideas that could make um, something that is core to the mission of many of the universities. Um, in the UK more visible um, and perhaps uh, somehow more coherent Um, but I also think there might be places that we could learn from the role that universities play in other parts of the world I mean I remember being um, uh, having a conversation with somebody at the University of Sao Paulo about the kind of way that they provide um, services and support to uh, you know the the community of Sao Paulo and I think that actually there might be some brilliant ideas out there that we could uh, play a role in, in showcasing so that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favorite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Vivian, David, Graham and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. 
Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.